The Literate Caveman, Episode 12, The Logic of Failure, Gathering Information. Welcome to the Literate Caveman Podcast. This podcast offers reviews of excellent books that you may not be familiar with, as well as addressing the topic of mindset in general. I'm your host, Chad Blake, and today we are going to continue our review of The Logic of Failure by Dietrich Dorner. In our last episode, we reviewed Dorner's thoughts on goal inversion, which is the tendency to make bad results sound like positive outcomes. We reviewed conceptual integration, more commonly known as doublespeak, voluntary conscription being an easy example that was in the text, and finally, how some people will fall back on conspiracy theories instead of recognizing their own bad decisions. Today, we are going to focus on discussing reality models and how understanding systems can help us make our goals more specific. We are also going to take a look at the helpful and potentially harmful effects of gathering information. Concepts introduced today will include positive feedback, negative feedback, critical variables, and indicator variables. Dorner opens this section of the text with an example of how basing a goal on a poorly defined problem in this case, treating a symptom and not identifying the underlying problem can create short-term success, the operative bit being short-term. He uses this example to demonstrate how a reality model that is too crude or too imprecise will lead us in the wrong direction. The example is that of a garden pond that smells bad. The assumption made is that the pond needs to be cleaned. So the fish are removed, the pond is drained, the bottom is dug up and carted away, replaced with new gravel, the plants are replanted, the water refilled, and the surviving fish return to their home. Mission accomplished. Except it is not. Two months later, the pond smells bad again. The work done had been deliberate, conscientious, and well-intended, but nonetheless inadequate. Why? Dorner tells us the reason was simply the plan selected and executed was treating the symptom and not the underlying problem. The underlying problem in this example was the size of the pond, specifically the depth in relation to the width, did not allow for adequate circulation, which allowed bacteria to thrive on the bottom of the pond. The solution to the problem was not to clean the pool and replace the existing gravel, it was to install a small pump to keep the water in circulation, thus not allowing the bacteria to settle in and propagate. Quoting from the text, he says, We cannot focus only on what is wrong and what we want to correct. If we want to make effective decisions, we need an understanding of the different components we are dealing with and how they interact with each other. We need the ability to view complex problems as systems, not just as an isolated problem to be solved with no trade-offs. Now, Dorner does not assume that any of this is easy or even obvious. He fully recognizes this is not simple, but that does not make it less necessary. He defines a system as a network of many variables in causal relationships to one another. He reminds us that within a system, a variable may even have a causal relationship with itself. In his garden pool example, the population of fish will have birth and death rates. Just in case... I will explain the difference between a causal relationship and a corollary relationship, because those two are often confused, and it relates directly to this subject. There are many examples, 
There are even some very poignant examples in science of a corollary being mistaken for a causal relationship. An easy analogy is that of a vehicle accident. A while back, I was working at a large gym in an urban area. One day, a member lost control of her vehicle in the parking lot, struck several parked cars, and nearly collided with the building, being stopped by one of the concrete posts in front of the parking places nearest the facility. I don't believe she was injured, just shaking up and embarrassed. I went outside with several other people to see what had happened and try to be of some help. A few of us walked through the parking lot and got an idea of what had taken place. It was obvious that several parked cars had been struck, and it was very fortunate that when this took place there were no pedestrians in the parking lot. If anyone had looked at the pavement and noticed skid marks and made the assertion that there was a vehicle accident, and here are skid marks, therefore skid marks cause vehicular accidents, that would be an example of mistaking a corollary effect with a causal effect. This happens all the time, not necessarily with skid marks and car accidents, but it is fairly common for a corollary effect to be assigned a causal relationship. In Dorner's Pond example, the corollary was the bad smell and the bottom of the pool. That was close, but the symptom of the bad smell was a corollary of the lack of oxygen on the bottom of the pool caused by poor circulation. Inadequate circulation was the cause. Dorner cautions the reader that if we do not consider a problem to be part of a system, we risk addressing only the symptom and not the root of the problem. In the long run, this can do more harm than good. However, merely declaring we are working with a system will only get us so far. The critical step is in understanding how the different variables within the system may affect each other and themselves. Remember in the case of the garden pond, the fish have the ability to reproduce, and in the course of time there will be a death rate. Thus the fish do not just have an impact on the pond, but also a direct impact on their own population. From here, Dorner introduces the ideas of positive feedback, negative feedback, buffering, critical variables, and indicator variables. Beginning with positive feedback, we see that the name of the idea is a little misleading or counterintuitive. In this case, positive does not mean better, it means more of same. In other words, a given variable will produce more of that variable, or a decline in a variable will produce a further decline. He gives the example of an animal population, saying that the larger a population is, the larger it becomes you can probably see how a larger population will require more resources. And if the growth of a population depletes resources, a point may be reached where there are not enough resources, and the population will decline. The way Dorner phrases this is, positive feedback tends to undermine the stability of a system. And I think that is a statement to bear in mind when thinking about positive feedback. Negative feedback, on the other hand, creates stability within a system. Dorner defines negative feedback as a situation where an increase in one variable produces a decrease in another, and vice versa. An example Dorner gives of negative feedback in a system is that of the predator-prey relationship in nature. An increase in a prey population may lead to an increase in a predator population. 
but the subsequent increase in the predator population will result in a decrease in the prey population, which will eventually cause the predator population to decrease in turn, creating a kind of equilibrium. He tells us that negative feedback is used frequently to create stable systems such as a cool refrigerator or a warm room. Dorner explains that when a system has many variables regulated by negative feedback, it is what he terms a well-buffered system. In other words, the system can tolerate many disturbances without becoming unstable. Opening a refrigerator door several times while putting away groceries or preparing a meal comes to mind. He cautions that in natural systems, the capabilities of buffers can be limited, and he uses the example of a water well to make his point. A water well can seem to its users like an unlimited resource, because as it is used, the water level appears to remain stable. But when the water is used up, the well can be dry for a very long time, or perhaps even never be a functioning well again. After this, Dorner makes a distinction between what he calls critical variables and indicator variables. Critical variables are those that interact with a large number of other variables in a system, and when altered, will have a significant impact on that system. In our refrigerator example, we could consider electricity as a critical variable, or leaving the door open overnight. Indicator variables, on the other hand, depend on other variables but are more like clues that help us evaluate the system rather than variables that influence the system. He also tells us that indicator variables tend to be more obvious, in other words, more visible than critical variables. Using a refrigerator again as an example, if the food retrieved from the refrigerator is warm or goes bad faster than expected, this can be an indicator variable that the refrigerator is not functioning properly. Much like we discussed causal relationships versus corollary relationships, spoiled food would be a corollary or an indicator of a malfunction, but not a causal or critical indicator. Quoting from the text, When we understand the links within a system, we can judge where the roots of certain deficiencies lie and can begin to define our goals more adequately. From here, there is an interesting section on how the ability to consider complex systems abstractly and not getting bogged down in rigid interpretations can help people draw from their own experiences which may seem to be completely unrelated to the complex system in question, to come up with useful strategies. He emphasizes that in order to apply this idea, we must understand the relationships between broad and narrow concepts, between what is abstract and what is concrete. If we know a lot about one subject, and very little about another, sometimes we can use what we know to draw broad ideas that can apply to what we do not know. This can lead to the formation of hypotheses, which admittedly will sometimes be wrong. But Dorner suggests two things. One, we can always correct a hypothesis if we are paying attention. And two, a false hypothesis is usually better than no hypothesis at all. I can certainly think of examples of false hypotheses causing harm, but generally, that harm was not so much about the initial hypothesis, but a stubborn resistance to reevaluating the hypothesis. At this point in the text, Dorner revisits his garden pond example, 
exploring the idea of how much detail one needs to go into to make the best decisions when dealing with complex systems. There is the basic level of recognizing that the pond contains fish, plants, and possibly water beetles. There is a deeper level of understanding that the fish requires oxygen, and they can only get oxygen from their water, and also understanding that the fish will produce waste, and ask what impact that waste will have. He goes into some detail on this. I will share a quote from the text that I think sums it up nicely. If we consider a system not on the level of its initially obvious elements, fish, water, plants, but on the level of parts that make up those elements, we have moved our investigation up a notch in the degree of detail. Part of the trick is figuring out what degree of detail is appropriate for our needs. Obviously, this is something that can vary widely from one complex system to another. And the level of detail we need might even change as we work with the system. Because of this, Dorner recommends identifying the level of detail that will allow us to identify the most interrelationships between our critical variables. He uses the analogy of driving a car to illustrate that point, and it is worth reviewing. On the subject of steering a car, the driver only needs to understand how the position of the wheel affects the position of the front tires. Knowledge of the linkage between the steering wheel and the front tires will not help this understanding, but to a mechanic, that level of detail can be essential. But even a mechanic will not likely need knowledge of the crystalline structure of the steel in the steering column. At this point in the text, Dorner outlines three requirements for dealing with complex systems. Number one, we need to understand how the causal relationships among the variables in a system work together. Number two, we need to understand broad and narrow concepts and how they relate to the hierarchy of the system in question. Number three, like his garden pond example, we need to be able to look deeper than the components of fish, water, plants, gravel, and have some understanding of how these individual components affect each other. Dorner proposes a couple of different methods for navigating this complicated subject. One way is to reflect on our own experiences to develop analogies we can relate to our complex system. This has obvious drawbacks, but it can be effective if people do not rely too much on past experiences. A more popular method is that of observation. If we have the luxury of time to observe, we can gather very specific information that can help us identify causal relationships between variables. Using the garden pond example again, if we notice there are less fish in the pond and then observe a heron or other fishing bird visiting the pond, we can establish a predator-prey relationship. Quoting from the text, Dorner cautions, Even after we know enough about a system to understand its structure, we must continue to gather information. We need to know about the system's present status so as to predict future developments and assess the effects of past actions. After this, Derner goes into quite a bit of detail reviewing some of the charts and the corresponding facts of some of his participants in his Tanaland simulation, where participants were put in charge of the fictional third-world country of Tanaland over several decades. Managing the Moro people who earned their living from the cattle and their millet crop. He gives some examples of positive feedback loops, 
mostly, about how participants were able to improve the size of the cattle herd one way or another, and how this increase in herd size, while initially a great boon for the fictional population, eventually led to either overgrazing or a critical depletion of the available water supply, or both, leading to famine and a population collapse. Dorner points out that, in spite of the best intentions of most of the participants, the majority of them failed to recognize they were dealing with a complex system. He reviews how several of them saw excellent results with their choices in the early stages of the experiment, but failed to see the warning signs, which were mostly about the cattle either overgrazing or the wells producing less water, and did not make the hard choices they would have needed to in order to save the Moro people from the impending famine. I feel the need to point out, I do not believe Dorner is being critical of his participants, although sometimes he is a little critical of their attitudes and their reactions. He is just reviewing his results. And the truth is, what he is describing is what people do. It is what I would do without this knowledge, and what most people listening to this podcast would do. It's human nature. This is a very complicated subject, and I believe he is fully aware of that. Returning to the text, he relates how one of the consistent errors of participants was most of them dealing with one problem at a time, not understanding the interrelationships between variables, and not connecting the dots, so to speak, on when things were starting to go wrong. His comments here remind me again of one of my favorite Thomas Sal quotes, There are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. And in the text, Dorner relates how a fundamental challenge for his participants was essentially looking at their choices as solutions and not considering the side effects they would cause. Quoting from the text, he tells us, They dealt with the entire system, not as a system but as a bundle of independent mini-systems, and dealing with systems this way breeds trouble. If we do not concern ourselves with the problems we do not have, we soon have them. End quote. When we think of our choices as solutions and not recognize them as trade-offs, we risk creating more problems, and worse, problems, or we might say side effects, that we do not become aware of until the damage is, if not complete, at least in progress. The reasons for this are understandable, and again, this is just what people do. One reason is a preoccupation with immediate goals. Immediate goals can be very pressing. And it is normal for a person to not consider problems they do not have yet. Another reason is information overload. If you have ever started a new job at a new company, or perhaps started a business, or even taken on a new hobby, you have probably experienced information overload. We have a limited capacity to deal with this, and in order to cope, we filter information, deciding what is important, what is urgent, and what we can ignore for now. Subjects that do not seem to be of immediate concern get pushed aside. That is not all bad. It is necessary. The trick is not to filter out the things that are going to be critical later to the extent that we have a disaster. The way Dorner phrases this is that filtering information saves cognitive energy. However, when the result of this filtering is failing to recognize that a system is a collection of many related variables... It virtually guarantees the neglect of side effects and repercussions, or trade-offs if you prefer that language. 
An interesting way in which some people will filter complex problems is through what is known as reductive reasoning. Reductive reasoning is the process of simplifying the subject to make it easier to cope with. Dorner provides a fairly detailed example of how one of his participants used reductive reasoning to create a chart for the Greenville experiment. If today is your first time to this podcast, Greenville was an experiment, Dorner's team ran that. Again, through a simulation, put participants in charge of the fictional town of Greenville with a very broad goal of improving the quality of life of the inhabitants. The chart Dorner describes was fairly detailed, and everything was built around the singular goal of the satisfaction of the residents of Greenville. He explains that, taken in isolation, each assessment was not wrong, but in the context of a complex system, it was incomplete. Applying deductive reasoning to a complex system can make it easier to deal with, but he warns that because it will not recognize the interdependencies within a system, the results will be bad. In spite of this, he feels that reductive reasoning is persistent and popular. Because it is less cognitively demanding, there is a tendency to try and simplify subjects by labeling them a certain way. Quoting from the text, The person who feels moved for one reason or another to study the nature of our world, or at least of our society, and who concludes that we live in an automobile society, or a service society, or an information society, or an atomic society, or a leisure society, proffers a reductive hypothesis that invites us to extrapolate a structure from it. He goes on to say that a reason for this is because the complexity of real life and all the interacting variables can feel uncertain, and uncertainty produces fear. He also points out that one of the ways people will maintain a hypothesis indefinitely is to ignore information that does not conform to the hypothesis. There are a lot of examples of this, but one that comes to mind for me is the case of the so-called Seven Countries study conducted by Ansel Keys beginning in 1956. Keyes had strong opinions about what leads to coronary disease and stroke, and he is well known for being dismissive of any evidence contrary to his own hypothesis. It is said the data was initially collected from 21 different countries, and Keyes rejected any information that did not line up with his own hypothesis. Another theory is that Keyes had traveled Europe extensively and had a decent idea of how people ate, so he selected countries and populations that were more likely to conform to his own hypothesis, rejecting countries such as Germany and France because he knew the data would not line up with his theories. There is further data that suggests he was selective even about the data he accepted from the seven countries submitted for the study. For example, recording dietary data from the Greek Isle of Crete during Lent, when the dominantly Greek Orthodox population would have been avoiding animal meats and thereby animal fats. I am certain you can think of an example in your own life or profession of someone ignoring or dismissing data that conflicted with their own views. Quoting again from the text, Dorner tells us, We are infatuated with the hypothesis we propose because we assume they give us power over things. We therefore avoid exposing them to the harsh light of real experience, and we prefer to gather only information that supports our hypothesis. He finishes this paragraph with a statement, In extreme cases, 
we may devise elaborate and dogmatic defenses to protect hypotheses that in no way reflect reality. I feel like that is a good place to conclude today's episode. Next week, we will continue our discussion of this fascinating book. Thank you for listening. Go read a book.